For many years, I used to say about my evening mass on Saturday um, that it was my guinea pig mass because I tried out my ideas. And I had my outline. I knew what I wanted to say. Uh, and I never write homilies out. I just can't do it because as I write, I keep thinking of more and then it's pages long. So I just said, no, I can't do it. I got to get an outline and stick with it. Um, and the thing is that many times something pops into my head right while I'm there, like I did this morning. I was sitting there and the example that I needed, it came to me. So last night, my guinea pig mass was really what I eventually began to call my, my uh, teaching mass because... Um, and I know Carol, and any, who, how many are teachers or have been teachers in school? Well, uh, I think you know it's, it's safe to say that you learn your subject best when you teach it. <laughs> because as you're teaching and you say something, you ask yourself, can I say that? Is that the right number? Wait a minute, why is that so? And you start to think it through more. So the more you teach a subject, the more you learn it. Um, so, case in point. Uh, I had a teacher in the seminary, this is what just hit me this morning, Father Ed Johnson, and uh, he was a new teacher my junior year, and it was the year that we uh, began to take a, a chemistry class. So we went into the class, and the first day, someone broke a beaker. Now, a beaker, if you don't know what it is, is a little glass thing that you begin to mix your chemicals and all that, and uh, so someone broke a beaker, and they weren't cheap, I think, and he looked up. And uh, we didn't know him at all. We'd heard he was tough. And, and then we went on. About 20 minutes later, someone dropped and broke another beaker. And he looks up like this. Gentlemen, that's the last beaker that will break in this class. And it was. For the whole year, it was. I think it's a good example of how people describe God. And it's sad. Even in the scriptures, they talk about the wrath of God and how God came to destroy the people. And even Jesus' example today, he's talking about the kingdom of God. And he talks about the king becoming enraged and going out and killing, murdering them all. Not killing them, murdering them all and burning their cities. Is that what we think of God? And if it's not a good description of God, why is it there? Well, it's because the scriptures, though inspired when men wrote them and maybe some women wrote them, they were inspired to describe God as we understood God, as we understood God, the best of our ability to understand, and then to describe our relationship with that God. But our understanding sometimes is skewed or wrong. For example, if you read the first chapter of Genesis, it describes the creation of the world, and it says real clearly that God created, began to separate the, uh, the sky and, the, and the, the earth, and and the understanding of people at that time was that the earth was flat. So they said in Genesis that God created a dome, and in the dome he put the stars and the sun and the moon, because that's how people saw it with their own naked eye. They, they looked up and say, that's a dome, it's over us, and the sun and the moon and stars are in that dome. And that dome revolves around the earth. That's the only way they could describe why does the sun come up over here? It goes across the sky, goes down here, and then comes up again in the morning because the earth is flat. And it wasn't until 1450 that Galileo and Copernicus discovered a telescope and they said, there ain't no dome. And the sun and moon are not revolving around the earth. We're revolving around that. 
And they were, they were excommunicated by the church because they said, you're going against the word of God. But the word of God was wrong because the word of God is mixed with the word of man and woman. And so in that mixture, we find mistakes, errors, scientific errors. Because basically, the scripture isn't meant to be a science book. It's meant to be a theology, a book about God, theo. So I think that we describe God based on the way that we love and don't love. Yesterday, I was looking for a quote by St. Augustine. And uh, I came across another one that was so delicious, I said, I have to tell them. This is what St. Augustine once said. Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Wow. It's a perfect description. Resentment, I'll pick on you, Jesus. Okay, so Jesus upsets me. He gets me really hurt and angry, and I'm angry at him. And I say, please don't ever say that again. And he says it again. And I'm angry again. And a week go by, he says it again. It's the same thing, and he just irritates me. Well, the first time I'm hurt, and hurt often turns to anger, especially the second time, does the same thing. The third, fourth time, I start getting resentful. Hurt turns to anger, and anger felt again and again, re-sentimiento, re-feeling, re re-feeling. I say when... Hurt turns to anger. That's something you can pass through. You can pass through quickly. We don't always do it. But you hurt my feelings. I get angry. And then I say, oh, come on, Perry, get over it, for God's sake. Just get over it. Tell him how you feel and let it go. But if I don't let it go, and I take the pill of resentment, the poison of resentment, it will poison me. It will poison me. And people can hang on to resentment for years. No, nobody here in this company, other people, okay? <laughs> but I'll give a good example. Between a husband and wife or children and their parents or parents and their children, siblings. Somebody hurts their feelings, a friend. And, and by the time it gets to resentment, this is what you hear like the fifth, sixth time or a year later. Or five years later, somebody says something and says, there you go again. They said, what did I say? That. And I told you five years ago, I remember, it was August 30th at 7.15 in the morning. And they remember those details because they're so resentful. They're poisoned waiting for the other to die. Now, in complete contrast to that is God's love. And I do not, I don't care whatever I read in the scripture, I do not believe that God is wrathful and angry God, mean God. Jesus himself says it so well. God sends his rain upon the good and the bad alike. He gives that sunlight to the good and bad alike. When Hitler was on this earth, he got the sunlight and the rain just like everybody else. And he was a bad boy. Bad boy. So it isn't, God isn't waiting for us to be perfect before he pours his goodness and grace on us. In fact, as he, Paul says uh, in, this, in, the, in his letters, you know, it's, it's hardly imaginable that somebody would die for a good person. But when we were still steeped in sin, God died for us. Christ died on the cross while we were sinful, not when we had become perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but I think you and I should find that to be incredibly uh, encouraging scripture. 
that while we were sinful, God died for us. Now, I don't think, personally, I have no way of proving it, that God turns on his grace more here, less here. Uh, he ups it, he downs it. I think God just loves perfectly all the time, infinitely, uh, without any conditions, without any reservations, never holds back. It's pure love, always. Now, the only argument that I know about this is what people say, well, Father Perry, you know, then you're encouraging people to be bad. Why, why be good if God gives you his grace anyway? And I would say because it's in goodness that we most experience it and know it. But the real question is, where does it begin? Does God give us grace because we do good things? Or do we do good things because God gives us grace? So if you listen to these prayers today, this is what I would call a perfectly integrated, integral celebration of liturgy, uh, word and prayer. They, they, they absolutely complement one another. Listen to this opening prayer. May your grace, O Lord, at all times, at all times, go before and follow after. Go before us and follow after us. Surround us. And he says this, and make us always determined to carry out good works. Ah, it's the goodness and grace of God that he bestows on us that actually calls us into goodness and good works. It's not that we just automatically think of doing good works. And then in the prayer after communion, I'll repeat it now rather than later, we entreat your majesty most humbly, O Lord, that as you feed us with the nourishment which comes from the most holy body and blood of your Son, so you may make us sharers of his divine nature, so that by eating and drinking the presence of Christ in Eucharist, by letting Jesus Christ, who said, I am the bread of life, whoever eats me and drinks my blood will never be hungry, they'll never be thirsty, they'll never die. This inner life will be so powerful that when we do physically die, we won't be dead. We'll pass into new life. If that is true, then this grace of God, this love of God, is radically different than the way we love. Never conditioned, never held back, but always poured out all over us. So we hear in these scriptures today, so integrally united, it talks about going up on this mountain where there will be a feast. And, and it's, it's worth, well, I have it on my phone too. It's, it's worth saying this because Isaiah, you know, when the scriptures want to say something, they either repeat it, like when Jesus really wants you to hear something, he says, amen, amen, I say to you. It's not one amen, it's two or there's a gross exaggeration like in the gospel. So this is what Isaiah says. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will provide for all peoples a feast of rich food and choice wines. Thank you. Oh, no, but he repeats. Juicy rich food and pure choice wines. If you didn't hear it first time, did you hear it the second? He will provide feast a feast and then he says my god will fully supply whatever you need in accord with his glorious riches in christ jesus it's but it's in the second reading that that we hear that it it doesn't depend upon us rather we depend on it 
he says, I, Paul is describing his life of grace. I know how to live in humble circumstances. I know also how to live with abundance. In every circumstance and in all things, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of living in abundance and of being in need. And what has made the difference for Paul, he says, is this glorious gift of Christ and his grace and his love in our lives. Radical love, I call it. Radical love. All we need to do is to open up to it and to say, thank you, God. And then it keeps getting bigger, more. Not because more is being given, but because we're opening more to it. The more we let the goodness in, the greater the goodness is experienced. And God, I think, has to just be laughing and saying, oh, you fools, you, you could never take in all I have to give you. When you think you're full, I'm giving you more. It's like a thimble or a barrel or a pool that is full to the top. One more drop makes it over full. So you put in one more drop and the pool starts to overflow. One more drop and the thimble overflow. One more drop of wine and, and the glass will spill over. And God keeps pouring. And we don't even know it. That's what the prayer is about, to, to pause and listen and to, to notice, to become aware of God's goodness and love. Now, if you don't like my message, I'll give you the argument. You say, Father Perry, you're nuts. No, God punishes for sin. I say, really? Really? I think God loves no matter what. And a very weak kind of shadow-like example is you with your own kids. And, and most families describe, you know, they, they, they're upset with the black sheep that we call it, the black sheep. The one who always messes up, why did mom and dad give them more attention? Because they need it. Do they love them more? Well, no, but in a way, yes, because they need it. They, most parents don't say, I'm going to stop loving you because you've been bad. They're looking for every way to make the breakthrough. How can we get into their head and their heart to help them feel our love and, and begin to live as they really should? Now, today's scriptures are about radical love. And so finally in the gospel, Jesus tells it this way. And he tells it to the scribes and Pharisees who are so bent on following the law, but, but not really, not with their heart, but with their uh, computer or their calculator, you know. You can't take this many steps. Okay, that's it. I'm going to follow the law. You must go to Mass on Sunday. I'm expanding this. Go to Mass on Sunday. <gasps> I went to Mass. We used to even have the law that what, what, if you were late for Mass, how was the latest you could be? What did you have to hear? The gospel. When could you leave? Right after communion. So if you, you arrived late, oh, the Lord be with you. I made it. Oh, my God, I made it. Check it off. And you, you receive communion, and you walk right out the door. I don't see it here, but I used to see it in several churches. People would receive communion, walk right out the door, and check it off. They did it. They did their obligation. That's following the law. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, love the law with all your heart and soul. Give, you, give it everything you have. So 
in this gospel. And this case, Jesus doesn't, doesn't so much repeat it. There's a little repetition, but what there is is hyperbole, gross exaggeration to make his point. So the king, it's not just a wedding feast, it's the king's son's wedding feast. And wedding feasts weren't for an hour or a day. They were like for four or five days. And this is the king's son. This was the party of the year. The party of the decade, maybe. Maybe it's his only son. He doesn't say. But people just walked away from the invitation. Didn't come. Others made all kinds of excuses. And then he sends his servants, here's the repetition, to ask them, please come. They ignored them. Then he sent some more, and this time they didn't just ignore them. Actually, they responded. They killed him. And the king became enraged. The king became enraged. He murdered them and burned their towns. A little hyperbole. He's saying this to the scribes and Pharisees who followed the law by obligation. Is that enough? No, it is not. It's not a question of following it to please God. God doesn't need us to follow laws. God is perfectly content, I think. I mean, he's the God of the universe. The God of the universe. But we need to do it. We need to be in step and in harmony with God for us to get the riches, to really experience it and celebrate it and enjoy it. It's kind of like when somebody gives you a nice gift, you don't have to say thank you. There's no law. It's polite to say thank you. It shows good breeding. You've been well-educated. But the real reason is when you sit in gratitude for a gift received, you receive it a second time. You, you receive it, and then you say, thank you. You've received, you've opened up to its, its beauty. So what will we do with this radical grace? It's, it's given to us in word today in superabundance. It's always given to us in Eucharist. We are deprived these days. I'm the only one who gets to drink from the cup these days. That's all right. We share the body of Christ. We share Christ. And even if for any reason we can't receive communion or aren't receiving communion, we receive Christ. There's just multiple ways. But no matter how many ways we receive Christ, the thing that makes the most difference of all is that we appreciate, that we know gratitude and we know how to open up more. This is the reason, I suppose, that it is so good after communion, after we've received, after we've sung, after as a community we've done you know, what we do together to be united in Christ, we sit down and we zip it, we zip it for a minute or two just to sit in gratitude, just to sit in gratitude. Why? Because our God loves us radically, more than we could ever, ever deserve, more than we could ever even understand, more than we could ever appreciate, and he never, ever, ever stops loving.